Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Hey, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. We're going to take this in two parts because this is an amazing passage. It's uh, Paul, um, he goes to Corinth, or excuse me, he goes to Athens, and uh, we have the Mars Hill Sermon out of this. Okay, and it's a fascinating thing. It's amazing how Paul um, shares the gospel. And I think we have a lot to learn in this. I think this is something that's instructive. So I'm going to take it into two parts. We're going to look at the first part of this, uh, verses 16 through 21, and, and just walk through a few things. We, we are living in a day and age where the Epicureans and the Stoics are very, very, very prevalent. They may not call themselves Epicureans. We may not call ourselves that. We may not call ourselves Stoics. But their philosophies of, of how they view the world, their worldview systems are extremely prevalent today. Because on the one hand, we have, in effect, hedonism. And on the other hand, the other pendulum swing here, we have what you would call rationalism. Everything's about the mind. Everything's about what I got to figure out. Everything's about how I can get that uh, bottom figure to work out. Or it's all about me. It's all about my pleasure. It's all about what I want. And everybody else is supposed to be doing that on my behalf. So it's very prevalent. It's very interesting to me that the the word of God, some people want to say that the word of God is old and it's 2,000 years and has no application for my life, folks. The the word of God is the word of God. It is the eternal word of God and it speaks to our hearts, it speaks to our culture, it speaks to our lives today. It's relevant. It's absolutely essential in every one of our lives. Look at verse 16. He says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, remember he had to escape from Berea. Some of the Jews had come in from Thessalonica and so the, the believers there in Berea They got Paul onto a boat and they got him to escape to Athens. Silas and many of the other group, Timothy, stayed in Berea. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. There's a couple interesting thoughts here. First is provoked. His spirit was being provoked within him. Now, I I don't want to get too deep into this, but I truly believe we are three parts. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul refers to this, that we are spirit, we are soul, we are body. Spirit is that part of us that communicates with God. We are different than the animals. Animals, sorry, I love my little Bennett, but he does not have spirit. Not in that way. (laughs) He does have soul because our soul is how we relate to our environment. Our soul is our mind. Our soul is, is what is being renewed right now. Romans talks about that, that we are being renewed in our minds. Our minds, our souls are being pulled up into a proper place, subservient to the spirit. And our bodies, our bodies, we know from Romans chapter 6 and 7 and all different passages that sin dwells within us that is in our flesh. One day we're going to get a new body, praise God for that. Our souls are being renewed and we have a new spirit 
that the Holy Spirit has come to indwell. Here he says very clearly that his spirit was being provoked. So he's not just rationally thinking about something here. There's a spiritual element to this. He's watching what's going on. And in him, as he's communing with God, in his spirit, there is a provoking of what he's seeing. The word provoke literally means to cut, to pierce, to prod. He's provoked. He's not just irritated. So we tend to think of provoked in a negative way. Here it's being used in a sense, in a positive way, because he's seeing things for what they truly are. He's recognizing the reality of the depravity of the environment, the culture that is surrounding him. He says he's observing the city full of idols. That word to observe is, is, is as if he was at a theater and he's watching a play. He, he's observing this. He's watching this. What is he watching? He's watching this whole city filled with idols. Idolatry. Everywhere. One commentary put it this way, that uh, it would be easier to find an idol than it would be to find a, an individual, a person. In Athens, that's how many idols there were. Who knows how many? And so Paul, the great apostle, has been brought secretively in order to escape from Berea and Thessalonica on his second mission journey to get into Athens. God has brought him here sovereignly. He is there and he's observing, he's watching, and his spirit is provoked. Let me ask you something. What provokes us? What provokes us? When we begin to observe our culture, we begin to observe what's going on around us. Are we provoked not in our minds simply, not just from a rational perspective, but from a spiritual, word-centered, God-centered perspective? Do we recognize that there's idolatry all around us? First John, he ends his epistle, John the Apostle. He says, little children, do what? Guard yourselves from idols. See, we, we live in a very sterile society. We live in a very scientific, rational society. We love when one plus one plus one equals three. But in God's economy, one plus one plus one equals one. And that's hard for us to figure out. All around us, there's the threat of idolatry because idolatry begins to be anything that would begin to take our energy, take our mind, take our time, take in effect our worship. You say, how do you know when you're beginning to serve an idol? Well, I would suggest to you if that idol is taken away from you, what is your response? If you can no longer have it, What's your response? If it's no longer there in order to provide for you what you feel or have attached to it, what's your response? You're upset, you're miserable, you crave after it. It very well may be that that's become an idol to you. All around them, Paul's observing idolatry. And he's provoked in his spirit. When I was uh, in Burma, I've been twice, 
And it was interesting, walking through Yangon, Myanmar. Okay, Myanmar, Burma, Yangon's the main city. We would go there, and then we'd fly up into the north in order to go to Kalau, in order to minister to the people there, the Palong people. And when we would come back, we would be taking a flight out of Yangon back to Seoul. And, and during that day, while we were waiting for the flight, we had plenty of time. And so we'd go into the city. One of the things that we have done is gone to what's called the Shwedagon Pagoda. Now, it was interesting because I didn't catch this. As we were driving around Yangon, I began to see uh, all kinds of signs with the idea of Dagon. D-A-G-O-N, Dagon, Dagon beer, Dagon this, Dagon that. Well, the Shui Dagon Pagoda, Dagon. Do you remember Dagon? Do you remember the god Dagon? If you look at the Old Testament, you look at who who did the Philistines worship? It was the fish god, Dagon. And it was shocking to me. I thought, what? Where did this come from? And how is Buddhism related to that? So we would walk into the Shwedagon Pagoda. You had to take your, your shoes off. You had to walk basically barefoot. And in that particular area, it, was a, it wasn't just a pagoda. It was a 13-acre complex. Idols everywhere. Buildings everywhere. The Shwedagon Pagoda, the pagoda itself, was in the center of it all. And everything went around it. And I can assure you, That as a believer, when I walked into that place, you sense pretty significant spiritual warfare. You immediately sense depravity. You're watching families uh, wash statues and idols in order to earn merit. You watch little children running around, bowing down. You watch people lighting incense and worshiping idols everywhere. And in your spirit, you're provoked. You're pierced. Why? Because you know this is false. You know this isn't true. And you know that people are placing their faith in something that is not from God. And you know that many of these people, unless God sovereignly intervenes in some way, are going to spend eternity separated from God in hell. Folks, there's a reason Paul's provoked. It's not just because he's intellectually correct. It's because he has a passion and a heart for the lostness of the people all around him. It's because he sees that they're buying into the demonic system, to the world system that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And there's no hope. There's no purpose. There's no life in it. And their eternal lives are going to be impacted. Idolatry is ultimately the worship of demons. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20. Paul's talking about this, and he's, it's a bit of a different context, but he makes a statement here about idolatry that I think is important to understand. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? It's wood, it's hay, it's gold, it's whatever it is, Right? Or the food. What's food? 
Paul made it very clear the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about love. What's food? What he's concerned about is the thinking behind it. What he's concerned about the worship that is taking place that is false. He says, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? To demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Wow. That's heavy, isn't it? When we participate in idolatry, we are literally worshiping demons. Now, folks, we got to wrap our mind around that a little bit. Because we don't have maybe a Buddhist statue in our home that we bow down to and that we bathe or that we offer incense or food to. But there's a lot of things that if we were to be gut honest about it, they're just as much idols as whatever statue you put in that place. How are we being provoked in our spirit? How do we look around and observe? How are we seeing things through God's eyes, through the rose-tinted glasses of Christ himself? How are we viewing people enslaved to something that's false with devastating eternal consequence? I was getting my blood taken this week. I've, I do that because I'm Iron Man. And uh, they, found out that, <laughs> they found out I got a lot of iron in my system. And the only way to do it is to give blood, right? So I got to go and do that. And Amen. Well, the lady that was doing it this week uh, wasn't the normal lady. I've built this relationship with one of the nurses down at the blood bank. And love her. She's a Dallas fan. How can I not love her? And uh, so, no, she's a sweet lady. And I appreciate her. Well, this, this lady was new. This lady was... Somebody that I'd never um, had before. And, and so she was talking to me. And we're kind of, okay, how are you doing? What's your... Now, she was pregnant. And I, I'm grateful for the eight-month pregnancy moment. Because the five-month pregnancy moment really makes me nervous. You know what I'm talking about? You don't go up to a woman and say, when are you due? <laughs> that's not a good thing. I've done that before. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. So, praise God. <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> Have you never done that? Come on, you got to be serious. Anyway. <laughs> this lady was obviously pregnant. So I started talking to her about it. She started to share with me, well, we went and my husband and I were looking at uh, what signs we are. And what sign our baby's going to be. And what sign our other child is. Oh, provoked. My spirit, I immediately, Lord, what do we do? What do I say here, Lord? I got three minutes, whatever. What do I say? I don't want to drive her away. I don't know this lady. I can't lose her. She's already lost. But Lord, here I am, right? Here we are. Vessels through which your glory is being revealed. Do you want me to say anything? You want, if you do, what do you want me to say? So I began to talk to her about what I do. <laughs> oh, we just had a pastor's retreat, and it was a great time. We had a fun time. She kind of froze, you know. And then we started talking about our kids. 
and how I pray for them and how God loves them and how I'm praying that they will follow the Lord. And I don't know how God will use that. Folks, all around us, people are lost. All around us, people have no hope. They're without God. Are we being provoked in our spirit as we observe? And are we willing to be used by the Lord in whatever way he chooses? So that through us, his love is declared, is proclaimed. Through our actions, our attitudes, and at times when God leads, through what we say. Paul is provoked. It's interesting because he follows the pattern here. He was reasoning in the synagogue. Right? The idea of reasoning again as he was dialoguing with the, with the Jews, with also the God-fearing Gentiles. And then it says this, in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be present. Now, the idea of happened here is not that God's not sovereign and didn't send specific people to Paul. It's the idea that Paul didn't have a plan or program in the midst of going to the market. He was just showing up saying, Lord, here I am, use me. And whoever you choose to bring here, praise God, let's go. But he was in the synagogue and he's reasoning, he's dialoguing, he's sharing with them the gospel, he's sharing with them the truth of the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's doing it from the Old Testament. He's doing this with the Jews, he's also doing it with the God-fearing Gentiles that are there. He's done this everywhere that he's gone. But here we find out he goes to the marketplace. We might put it in this set, where you work, your marketplace. When I was in Romania as a 19-year-old, we were there for three months, and, and we would go to the marketplace. Have you ever been to a marketplace in a, in a different uh, culture? It's fascinating. And you walk around, and you see all the things they have for sale, and all the different things, and you walk, and, and it's very clear that they immediately know that you're not one of them. And my friends and I were walking around, and I, we, I had my Bible with me. And so I stuck out like a sore thumb. Everybody was about this tall. I'm not that tall, but it felt like it. Kind of cool for a moment. But the, the problem is, is I wasn't paying attention to my friends. And they take a left-hand turn. And I kept going straight. Have you ever had a run-in with gypsies? That's an interesting moment. I could see the headlines in the newspaper in Romania right now. Uh, kid on mission trip arrested for beating up gypsies, you know, whatever, attacked. Because all of a sudden what happened is about 10 of them surrounded me. And they were patting me down. They were one lady, I mean a lady for heaven's sake, what do you do? She grabbed my Bible out of my hands and she started rifling through it looking for money. And I, I, you know, man up. (laughs) I grabbed that Bible back. And it was time to say, adios, God bless you, love you in the love of Christ, and I'm going to go find my friends, and you will not stop me. (laughs) And I got out of there. Thank the Lord. Marketplaces, interesting places in different countries. It's not really part of our culture. We have farmer's markets and different things like that. This is the center of everything happening. This is where all the people come to do their commerce All the food and all the wares and all the goods and all the things that people are selling and and have had made and all that different stuff is taking place. What does he do? He goes to the synagogue and he begins the dialogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. He goes to the marketplace and he also begins to share with them in terms of whoever's there and whoever wants to listen about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fascinating. Verse 18 takes us a little bit deeper. 
It says, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And also, it's kind of like we got the big picture. And now, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke focuses in on two specific, very important, influential, philosophical groups. The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And it says that they were conversing with him. That's a nice way of putting it. The word conversing doesn't really capture it. It's the idea that they were arguing, they were disputing with Paul. They didn't like what Paul had to say. And we can see that because of what they were saying about Paul. It says, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others were saying this, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Oh, the condescension, the arrogance, nose 10 feet up in the air, We're of Athens. We've got this all figured out. Who is this Jewish guy? The idea of an idle babbler means someone of no account. Someone who sells refuse in the market. Somebody who's chattering about things that they really don't know what they're talking about. The idea of a proclaimer of strange deities literally means of foreign demons. Not just deities, not just gods, but demons. They were totally trying to discount what the Apostle Paul had to say. And it says this, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. (laughs) Folks, don't, don't get caught off guard when you begin to preach Jesus and the resurrection. When people try to put you down, make you look like you don't know what you're talking about. You're not very intelligent. You're not very smart. You believe in the resurrection? How stupid. You believe in the Bible? It's 2,000 years old. It's not even relevant today. And how can 40 men write this over all the different times and there not be any errors in it? Come on. you got to be kidding me. Isn't that the deal? You believe God created the heavens and the earth? How stupid. You can hear it, can't you? Because it's being said today. Idol babbler, proclaimer of strange deities. Well, what did the Epicureans and Stoics believe? I think it's kind of interesting. Warren Wiersbe said this, and I think this is why this is so relevant today. He said, the person who chases the new and ignores the old chases the new and ignores the old, soon discovers that he has no deep roots to nourish his life. He also discovers that nothing is really new. It's just that our memories are poor. That's pretty wise, isn't it? Uh, Folks, I could go a long way on that one. I could tie that in with last week. Well, you can't do church that way anymore because the younger generation doesn't want it. Man, get on my soapbox. I think what the younger generation wants is transparency. What the younger generation wants is a solid ground. What the younger generation wants is authenticity. And pray God that in our lives we're yielded to Christ 
in such a way that they see it. Because that's what's ultimately going to win the younger generation. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 9 through 10, the preacher (laughs) says this, that which has been That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one may say, see this? It is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. I think that's very pertinent to the Epicureans and the Stoics because I see their philosophy impacting us today. There's nothing new under the sun. Fleshly, carnal thinking will always lead to their philosophies. And their philosophies are polar opposites. But in that, they're all encompassing. The Epicureans believed in pleasure and seeking after pleasure. The Stoics believed in the rational. They wanted to figure everything out based on the mind and what we can perceive and understand. The Epicureans, their whole goal was to seek after pleasure. They wanted to try to attain balance in this. In other words, there weren't extremes in it. But the goal was to enjoy life. Just enjoy it. Death was not to be feared. It was just a reordering of the atoms. Fatalism. No hope. No purpose. No authority. It's all about me and what I want and what feels good. The Stoics, they believed in a world god or power called the Logos. (laughs) Fascinating, huh? The Logos here was just this massive deistic supreme being that controlled everything. The whole world was a living organism that we were all a part of. And in each and every one of us, in our souls... The Logos resides. Sound familiar? I hope so. They studied nature and its laws, the Stoics did. They believed that all things came from fire and one day will be fully destroyed by fire. They they believed in a cyclical universe. The universe is created, it'll be destroyed. It'll be created and destroyed. Never ending, no hope, no direction, no purpose. Just some deistic God up there who wound the watch, put it into order. And so the Stoics believe that all we're supposed to do is find out what the natural order of things are and then make sure that we live according to them. Reason rather than passion was the pursuit. To react with reason rather than emotion. I love how Wearsby summarizes this. He says, the Epicureans said, enjoy life. And the Stoics said, endure life. But it remained for Paul to explain how they could enter into life through faith in God's risen son. Isn't that great? The resurrection cuts through all of this. The resurrection gives us hope. The resurrection gives us purpose. The resurrection declares emphatically that Jesus Christ is the God. And that salvation is in him and in him alone. The resurrection shows that God loves us. Because he sent his son to go to the cross in order to die for us. 
Folks, when we begin to witness, when we begin to share Christ, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ should be the central message because it absolutely emphatically shows who God is. Why were they interested in what Paul had to say? Well, verse 21 tells us, Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Talk about idle babblers. Proclaimers of strange deities. Always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Knowledge for knowledge's sake. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy, this is the last letter that he's written. And he's encouraging Timothy to guard through the Holy Spirit the treasure, the word of God that has been entrusted to you. Because it's the word of God that changes things. It's the, only, the word of God's the only thing that does change things. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Pleasure with no boundaries, hedonism, excess of pleasure, or everything based on reason, human secularism, science. Evaluate it. Find out what the natural laws are. And be reasonable. Folks, that's, what the, world, that's the world we live in. That's the world. The resurrection cuts through all that. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest message of hope to this world. And it is desperately needed. People all around us need Christ. What are the answers that we're giving them? Life. How about that one? Not just this life, not just purpose in this life, but life in what way? Eternal life. Life forevermore. Life with God. What do we have to offer people? We have life because we know that Jesus is life. We have hope. Christ in you, the what? Hope of glory, the assurance, the absolute certainty of knowing that we have a relationship with God through the Son based on what they've done, he's done for us. What a beautiful truth. We have purpose. Do you know how many kids today have no purpose? They've been told that science says that they came from muck. And as a result, go live whatever way you want. You have no greater authority over you. It's all about you and what you want and what feels good. So just go do it. 
Salvation by grace through faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, there's a phenomenal statement that Peter makes. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, born from above to a living hope. How? Through, by the means of, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Are we being provoked in our spirit as we observe what's going on around us? Is God developing within us a heart of compassion for those who don't have life, who don't have hope? They haven't been reconciled to God, and as a result, they're facing an eternity separated from him in hell. And are we willing to come before the Lord and say, Lord, here's our lives. Use them in whatever way you choose. Whether it's in Jerusalem, whether it's all the way to the uttermost, it doesn't matter. Lord, here we are. Use us in whatever way you choose. Whether it's in our marketplace, our area of influence, whether it's in our family, everywhere we go, do we recognize as believers that Christ indwells us and as a result, as we yield our lives to him, his light begins to be seen in and through our lives, through our attitudes, through our actions, and if necessary, our words. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.